end of chapter 1 when Jesus is born in Matthew's narrative to verse number 1 in chapter 2. But uh, many estimate it to be, at the most, two years. And we see some reasons why, as we get through the passage, you might have an opinion on that. And uh, we're not necessarily going to try to explain uh, how long, because it doesn't, I don't think it plays too importantly to the story one way or another. Chapter 2, though, begins another scene in our story of Christ, and we see the main characters appear in verse number 1. Right away, the wise men, or the magi, and King Herod. Verse 1, again, we'll go through this verse by verse and then pull out an application at the end. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Now, the words wise men, they come from a Greek word megoi, and it's where we get our word the magi. That's why if you've heard them called the magi, that's, that's why they got their name. Uh, because of that Greek word. That same Greek word is used elsewhere in the New Testament, and it's used to describe astrologers and sorcerers and all different types of men. Specifically, uh, if you remember your your uh, stories from Acts, uh, I believe it's his name was Simon, the sorcerer. Uh, his That word, Magoi, is used as well to describe him. Basically, the men in our story here in Matthew were men who studied the stars and sacred texts. They placed uh, great significance in dreams and magic. And there's no indication that these wise men were actually kings. We, in our Christmas songs, uh, we three kings of Orient are. Uh, we don't necessarily know that for sure. Uh, there was a, a, an early Christian writer named Tertullian who came up with that, uh, that idea based on his interpretation of uh, the 66th Psalm and Isaiah 49.7. There's really not a lot of information uh, given about these men, uh, but we know that they traveled a great distance to find Jesus. Even where they came from is up for debate, uh, but we know that they came from, it says, from the east. My theory is Babylon. Arriving in Jerusalem, they declare that they have come searching for one who is born king of the Jews. Verse number 2, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. They had seen a star in the sky. Through careful research and study, they connected it to a Jewish baby newly born. It may be that they had studied the writings of men such as Daniel, who prophesied of a Messiah that would come and be born in Israel. Even Balaam, who prophesied in Numbers 24, saying, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. We don't know exactly what they studied, but we know that they were, uh, that, uh, historically, these types of men were interested in the sacred writings, not just of, of uh, Jewish prophets, but of all, and so it's very likely that they were familiar, at the very least, with these texts. There are several interesting theories about the star that uh, the Bible doesn't really tell us a whole lot about them that either, uh, what it looked like and how the wise men determined what it what it meant and, and its connection to Christ, its connection to the baby. One thing we know for sure is that some particular and, and uh, peculiar phenomenon happened in the sky and these magi interpreted it as a marker 
to indicate the birth of a Jewish king. They followed it, found themselves in Jerusalem. That's where we see ourselves in verse number 2. As they understood it, and as they said it to, uh, not necessarily who they're saying this to, but as they said it here, uh, they understood this one to be born with a rightful and legitimate claim to the throne of Israel. And as a sign of respect to this new king, they had come to pay homage or worship this new king. I don't believe that they had come to worship him as we think of worship, as we've come here to worship, uh, but as rather as to pay homage to this new king of Israel. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. That's interesting. As they, the wise men were coming looking for a king, and the uh, king Herod uh, interpreted it as the Christ. And they said unto him, these priests and scribes that he called, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Now we know, of course, there was already a king in Israel. His name was Herod, Herod the Great. He had been appointed by Caesar, Augustus, in 37 AD. Herod was only half Jewish. And because of that, many uh, considered him to be an illegitimate king because uh, he was not a full-blooded Jew. Uh, though once considered successful in his earlier reign, uh, when we find him in the story here, he had become a cruel and oppressive ruler. He became paranoid and jealous of perceived threats to his throne. History tells us that he executed his wife, one of his wives, and he executed some of his sons because he thought that they were uh, becoming a threat to him, that they were plotting against him. At one time, he even ordered the execution of several Jewish leaders on the day of his death just to ensure that there would be national mourning because he knew he was a jerk and nobody would care that he was dead. So he wanted tears and he wanted sincere tears. And so he, his plan was to kill uh, beloved men of the, of the nation so that people would be shedding tears on the day of his death. Although it did not end up happening that way. Scripture tells us here that he was troubled at the news of a baby king, probably because he viewed this child as yet another threat to his power and his position. It tells us also that Jerusalem was troubled because, uh, probably because of Herod's anticipated reaction to this. If we think about it, even as the song we sang this morning, come, or as we will sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Uh, it was, it was a, a thing, uh, a national, uh, it was a national thing to desire the Messiah and the coming of the Messiah. And as they waited and anticipated for it, and I find it very ironic here that the reaction of potential Christ here is trouble rather than hope and joy. Uh, upon hearing the news, Herod calls in the scribes and priests who knew the law, who knew Old Testament prophecies, and demanded them again where Christ was to be born. And from Herod's statement here of where Christ would be born and then the the priest's response in the following verse, it's evident that the Jews recognized a clear messianic reference to the words. This is a, a prophecy from Micah 5.2. Uh, it says basically the same thing. We'll come back tonight and look at these prophecies a little bit more uh, closer, a little bit more closely. Uh, but for now, uh, you just know that it is Micah's prophecy and he essentially says what Matthew, what Matthew writes here. 
But whom the Magi searched for only as a king, or whom they only saw as a king, the scribes and the priests saw as a potential Messiah. As I said, this troubled them. Really, it shouldn't have troubled them. It shouldn't have bothered them in the least. It should have been a day of, of rejoicing. It should have been a, hey, let's go with you. Let's find this guy with you. Uh, this could be what we've been waiting for. And yet it troubled them. Verse 7, Then Herod, when he privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search for the, diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Tempting to describe his true intentions, he orders the Magi to find the child and then report back to him. Now we understand that his plan was to kill Jesus and eliminate this threat to his rule. And Herod disguised this wickedness as worship. The fact that he told them to search diligently suggests to us that uh, no one knew the exact whereabouts of the child uh, and that they didn't arrive immediately after or at least on the night of Jesus' birth. I know sometimes our nativity sets have the wise men arriving just about the same time that the shepherds do, but uh, that is, it is unlikely at the least. Verse number 9, When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. I read this again for probably the, the hundredth time uh, in my maybe maybe not in my life, but I've I've read this a bunch, and I read this and I I ask the question, why are they excited now? This is not the first time that they had seen the star. They saw the star back in Babylon or wherever they came from, but now they get excited about seeing the star. Why rejoice now? Is it possible that their joy was connected to the first mention of the star's movement? Because we, up to this point. The star hasn't been recorded as moving with them as it says it does now. Uh, now after leaving Herod, the star uh, began moving and literally guided them to the place where Jesus was. And I believe that seeing the star uh, moving and stopping and staying over the place where Jesus was uh, brought them overflowing joy as it brought them to Christ. But then, as they see Christ, it produced generous worship in their hearts. If you look in verse 11, and when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As with the Magi and the star they followed, we find even more elements in this story that have produced more speculation than information. No doubt you've heard plenty of, uh, of uh, talk and uh, even preaching and teaching on, uh, for instance, uh, the 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 place that they found Jesus, where Jesus was when they did. It says a house here, and so there's some room for uh, wondering if this was not the night that Jesus was not born in a house. He was born in a, and at least we laid in a manger. Uh, we 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 discuss about the time that they found him. We discuss even these gifts that they brought him. Many interpret these gifts to have a symbolic meaning to them. Uh, gold representing his kingship, frankincense for his deity, and then myrrh, which was an oil, uh, would uh, symbolically represents his death. Whether or not that's what the Magi had in mind, all three are at the very least suitable gifts to present to a king, which is what they, what, which is what we do know what they had in mind. They were going to bring gifts and honor a king. 
it's possible, it's very likely that, that Mary and Joseph used these gifts to finance the journey into Egypt that we're, uh, that we're about to read into. We see then in verse number 12, being warned of God in a dream that they should uh, not return to Herod. They departed into their own country uh, another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he rose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. We're reminded here of the, the second psalm uh, that says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And yet again, We've already seen it several times in just the first chapter. And now in the second chapter, we see again that the wicked plans of men cannot spoil or override God's sovereign plan. God intervened once again and warned the wise men in a dream not to return to Herod, but to go home another way. Not to share the location of the Christ, but to go home a different way. So they left. And after they left, it says here that Joseph also was warned in a dream to escape to Egypt and take his family far away from Herod's reach. It's estimated that there's about a million Jews living in Egypt that had become a bit of a safe haven for uh, Jews. And so uh, they went down there and away from uh, Herod and, and out of his reach. But uh, and, and we see here that uh, Matthew draws a parallel here to Hosea, which is where he's, he's quoting from Hosea 11. Uh, he, he draws a parallel between the, the description of Israel's history and Jesus' history. Again, we'll come back and look at that tonight. Very, very interesting, uh, these fulfillment uh, prophecy fulfillments. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth, and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by the Jeremy the prophet, or Jeremiah, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. So having realized that the wise men did not obey him, and feeling disrespected, feeling, is it the word here, mocked by their actions, King Herod alters his plan. We know what his intentions were to kill the Christ. Now they're not going to tell him where the Christ is. Time has gone on. He's realized uh, it's very possible that uh, there... It's not, this baby's not a baby anymore, and it won't be as easy to figure out. So what is Herod going to do? Well, and very similar to what Pharaoh did in Egypt thousands of years before, King Herod uh, alters this plan uh, and makes a desperate attempt to eliminate the threat to his kingdom, ordering all males, two years old and under, be killed. Now, we already know that Bethlehem was a very small town. Uh, I didn't, I, this was a new little fact that I had not ever realized I, it's this this little portion of the story is known as the massacre of the innocents or the slaughter of the innocents. But because of the small town, uh, it's it's estimated that there may have only been as twenty babies uh, that were involved that would have fit this range, and that twenty babies uh, would have been uh, would have been slaughtered by Herod. Interestingly enough, there is no other historical record outside of what we read here uh, that speak uh, of this slaughter. When I say only 20 babies, you know, if we found out that someone had killed 20 babies, we'd think, oh my goodness, what a, what a monster, right? But this 
the fact that there is no other record underscores how truly evil Herod was because there was so much more to talk about that was worse than the slaughter of what could have been only 20 people killed um, that they recorded those things. One, one writer even calls this a relatively minor incident in Herod's reign. You think killing 20 babies is, is relatively minor? It's because he did so many other horrific things and committed greater atrocities that it kind of overshadowed this event. Once again, Matthew draws from the Old Testament to quote from Jeremiah 31.15 when he says there in Ramah was a voice heard, lamentation, weeping, personifying the women of Israel as Rachel as they weep for their children. He was uh, talking about, um, and Jeremiah was talking about, how they had gone uh, when they were being brought away to exile, the Babylonian exile, and they, and they wept for losing their sons. But here Jeremiah sees another Old Testament uh, reference uh, being brought to being brought to light, and Jeremiah continues to draw these parallels. We'll come back, as I said tonight, and take a look at, at these deeper. But I want to I want to pull out these these two reactions from these two men, or these two groups of men, the Magi and then King Herod. They describe two very different and very opposing popular responses to the news of the authority of Christ. What, what the, the, those two men did today, or I call the Magi one, one man there, but what the Magi did and what Herod did are very similar to what people have done since they've ever, since the news of Christ has been uttered. And it still happens today and it will continue to happen. Uh, we can say it's the news of his authority, the news of his kingship, as they said, we're looking for the king of Israel. Uh, we could say it's the news of his, uh, his lordship. We could say it's the news of His sovereignty. It's the news of Christ, who He is and what He is. Two responses. Number one, there are those who accept it. They search for it. They worship. Magi followed the star from their home to Jerusalem. Wherever that home was, they traveled. uh, Some would say months to get to where, uh, to get to Jerusalem, only to then have to search uh, maybe house by house. I don't know how they found uh, the exact house outside of the star, but uh, they, they were planning on traveling a good long time and a good distance to find this child to worship him. They listened to the prophecy from the priests. They followed the star to Bethlehem and they rejoiced and worshiped the baby. They spent considerable time and money and effort in order to honor Jesus and probably at great risk. But then there are those who oppose this authority. Herod opposed and fought against trying to eliminate Jesus. He was threatened by Jesus, the newborn king of the Jews. Why? Because he wanted to be king. He was jealous of anyone who would threaten his way of life. Likewise, there are men, even today, many men, who feel threatened by the king of kings. Lord of Lords in their own lives. They like being their own king. They reject God's authority in His rightful place on the throne out of a desire to claim it for themselves. It was Lucifer in heaven who said, I will be like the Most High. It was what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden when the serpent told them that if they ate the fruit that was forbidden, they would be wise as God's 
and knowing both good and evil. And so they chose it because they desired it, regardless of what God said. Regardless that God had told them not to, they said, it looks good to me. I think this is okay. And they made a choice based on what they wanted. The truth is, we like the idea of being in charge of ourselves, don't we? We like being our own masters. And honestly, we bristle at any challenger to the throne of our lives. We resent the idea of there being a higher authority than ourselves. It's humbling to accept another authority. It's to, it, it's, it's against our nature to submit to the authority of another. And it's because sin resists the rightful king. Even the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans of a war that was going on within himself between his flesh and the Spirit. And he said that I do the things that I know I shouldn't do and I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I know I should do and I want to do. And he goes on to describe it as a war and ending saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Recognizing at the end that it would be only through Christ that he would find both victory and deliverance. Here's the thing. Whether we accept or resist the authority of Christ does not change the fact that Jesus is the King. Matthew in the, was the first to declare it in the New Testament that Jesus is the King. Philippians reminds us that one day though, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Gospel of Luke describes the coming of Christ as light to them that sit in darkness. John continues that theme of light by calling Jesus in the first chapter the true light that lights every man. And he says that true light was coming into the world. Later, John wrote in John 3, I want to read John 3 to you, uh, as John uh, describes to uh, us how the, the condemnation or the verdict of the light. It's John chapter 3. And verse number 19. Went too far. John chapter 3 and verse 19 says, This is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. What about us? Think about it for yourself. As I read these, these words, authority and kingship and someone else having the lordship over your life, what does that do in your heart? Do we resist the idea of someone else being the king? Someone else being the authority of having a higher authority? Someone who has the right to determine how we live. See, having a higher authority means that I'm not in charge. I don't get to live life my way. It means that someone else makes the rules and I simply follow them. It means that what I think doesn't matter. Only what the king says matters. 21st century America, we don't have kings and queens. We have a president, right? And I think a lot of times we see Jesus as our president. Let me explain. When things don't go our way, 
when God does not behave as I wanted Him to, we have this attitude, He's not my president. Isn't that what happened? Isn't that what happened in the election? He wasn't the one I voted for, and though He may be in charge, He's not my president. But many people, not necessarily you, but many people have the same attitude towards God. He's not my president. He might be your God. He might, you might be okay with His rules, but I'm not okay with those rules. He's not my president. You just wait until the re-election. And then I will be back in charge. See, here's the thing. Jesus is not our president. We didn't vote for Him. He doesn't make decisions based on approval ratings and party politics. If we don't like what He does, nothing we can do about it, is there? You can't impeach Him. You can't vote Him out of office. Jesus is King. He has no term limits. He shall reign forever and ever. The president serves the people. The king is served by his people. Jesus is the king and we live at his will, by his mercy, by his grace. So how does that make you feel? You bristle at that? News of a king like Herod did? To be honest, there's a part of, there's a part like that in all of us. It's our flesh. Not ready to give up the throne of our lives. Still vying for position, unwilling to yield or submit. But there is another part in, in, in those of us who have the Spirit of God that says, I like that. I rejoice in that. God, may your kingdom come. By praying that prayer, that part of the Lord's prayer, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. You are saying, God, I recognize you as the king and I want that in my life. And I, and, and as the prayer goes, may your kingdom come, may your will be done as in heaven, so in earth. I want you to be in charge. That only comes by the Spirit of God. And that's why Paul described it as a war going on inside of the believer. Because we have both. We have both wills. We have both parties, if you will, vying for position in our hearts. That war will never end while we live on this earth. But it is through the power of God's Spirit within us that we can honor Him. We can fall down and worship our King. We can and should offer Him the very best that we have. He deserves that much, doesn't He? He deserves more than what we can give because He is our King. Who are you this morning? Herod, you a wise man. Do you resist it? Do you search it out and say, I, I, I long for that. That's what I want. I want you to be my king. We sing, we sing several of the songs that describe that. May it be not just a song that we sing, but may it be an attitude we have daily in our hearts. Jesus, you are my king.